Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. Probably every American has heard of the Ten Commandments. Well, what do they think about the Ten Commandments? And how they think of them is vastly different. Think with me for a moment. What if our postmodern society came up with their own Ten Commandments? What might that look like? Thou shalt not push thy private religious beliefs on anyone else. Thou shalt celebrate whomever or whatever someone says is true, even if reality clearly says that it's not. Thou shalt bow down to science as the final rule and authority in all things, even what science, if science says something that sounds really wrong. Thou shalt steal from those who probably wouldn't miss it anyway, like your employer or the government. Thou shalt pursue at all times and at all costs whatever you believe to be for your own perfect good happiness, no matter what the cost. But church, what about us? I mean, we can giggle at those things, and I probably could have come up with, kept going on that. What about us? How do we view the Ten Commandments? Are they still in effect, or are they the dusty vestiges of the cranky old God of the Old Testament? How and why did the law originate? Is it still for us? Is it still good? Most Christians are confused about God's law. Most churches don't spend any time teaching on God's law or even speaking about God's law. And all of the above are big parts of why we are focusing on the Ten Commandments, which is extremely needed today. So that being said, let's jump in. Let's hopefully are in Exodus chapter 20. Jumping into our new series here. I have been immersing myself in whatever solid books, confessions of faith, and catechisms, mostly from old dead guys. You know that I love the old dead guys very much. We're going to be anchoring ourselves in Exodus 20 and week by week stepping through each commandment. But today is going to be our introduction to kind of get our arms around all of this because for us, as we approach God's law, it kind of causes us to scratch our heads a little bit. As many of you know, who are boldly endeavoring to read through the whole Bible this year, we need to get our bearings on where we are. We just parachute into Exodus. We're not quite in Exodus yet, I don't think, although some of you are overachievers in this, this read of ours that we're doing. We're parachuting into Exodus, and we have to find our place kind of in the great redemptive story of God. And so what's happened so far? Well, creation has obviously happened so far. The fall into sin has happened. The nation of Israel has been created by God through Abraham. Jacob has had his 12 sons, which will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And more recently, in our point where we're jumping in here, there's been a global famine. And that Israel found their way in Egypt to search for food. And they found also one of the lost sons, Joseph who was rejected by his brothers and soon rose to power in Egypt. And of the whole world, Joseph was the only one that had grain and food. So the whole world came to Joseph, including Israel, for food. What happened was, as Israel grew in number and Joseph ended up passing away, of course, a new pharaoh, a new sheriff in town came in. The text tells us in 1.8 that he did not know Joseph and he didn't really care who Joseph was didn't know that Joseph had saved the whole nation and probably most of the free world from starvation. What he was most concerned about, those pesky Israelites. They were growing in number and they were getting afraid of them. He said, what if they rebel against us? We're in big trouble. 
Well, here's what we have to do. We have to enslave them. They enslaved the nation of Israel for over 400 years under cruel tyranny. And then the Lord God led them out through the plagues, leading them through the Red Sea on dry land and getting victory over Egypt. Israel has escaped slavery and soon they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's quite a scene. You've got smoke and thunder and lightning and the voice of God declaring his law. But before he gets to specifics of what the law is, he sets the foundation for who he is and what he has done for his people. And by extension, that's us, church. The church of God and Jesus Christ, the people of God. And this is what God tells his people. Look again at Exodus chapter 20, in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the introduction, the the prelude to the law of God, and we can't blow by this because God is telling us who he is and what he's done for his people. And in doing that, we learn two really important things about God's law. If we track back to verse 1, the text simply says what? And God spoke all of these words, saying this. And so the first important thing we learn about God's law is that God's law is from God. God's law is from God. Wow, Pastor Mike, deep stuff there. This is, this is it. This is all you got. This is what you've been working on for weeks and weeks. It might seem like a pretty obvious point, but if God's law came directly from God, then that tells us something. It doesn't come from thin air. It doesn't come from man's own interpretation, man's own creation. It's the very words of God. And again, referencing Uh, a couple weeks ago when we were in 2 Timothy. This is very, very important to remember. The Old Testament still being inspired by God. In verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, training and righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Well, yeah, I know, Pastor Mike, but that's the New Testament, not the Old Testament. No, all scripture is breathed out by God, including God's law that he gives them at Mount Sinai. All of scripture includes God's law. And as New Testament believers in the church of Jesus, we can't get rid of God's law. Why? Because it came directly from God. He's the one who spoke it. He's the one who created it. It remains unchanging, perpetual, permanent. We are still under the law of God today. How and why? That's what we're going to talk about. But for now, to help us get our arms around this idea of why the law of God must be central to our lives, God's law is from God, and therefore, God's law reflects God's character. It is not just something that God wrote down that is completely apart from him. God's law reflects God's character. When God says, do not lie, it is because he is truth. It is because he will never lie. He cannot lie. When God says, do not commit adultery, it is because God is perfectly faithful. There's no way that God could be anything other than faithful. When God says, do not worship any other God except for me, it's because he is the only God. So the first thing we talk about God's law being from God, we can't separate God's law from his character. It is embedded throughout his law. We can't just pull it out and say, no, we don't want to do that or we don't want to do this. God's law reflects his character. It's not like our society's laws, right? 
our society's laws don't seem like they're reflecting of any character sometimes whatsoever. And maybe a complete lack of moral character. Not so. So we first have to untangle ourselves that this is a different law altogether. These aren't arbitrary rules. We can't just throw them out. It reflects God's character. God is eternal. His law is eternal. And it's still binding on us in 2022 America. And when we start dropping terms like God's law, I can feel some of you getting nervous already, right? We have to define terms because we're like, all right, Pastor Mike, okay, cool. But, you know, like, keep going, you know, go, go into Exodus and beyond. You know, you get through Exodus, you get into Leviticus, like there's some scary things in there. You get into Deuteronomy, you're saying that all that stuff is still for today? Sort of. I'm saying sort of. Church fathers and theologians have long agreed on a threefold division of the law. And I want to just briefly explain that so we can, we can get our arms around the threefold division of the law. First, we have the ceremonial law. It's God's law for Israel about how he is to be worshipped. He says, there are priests, there are feasts, there are sacrifices, there are food laws. All of this for you, Israel, so that you will look different than the nations around you. The ceremonial laws. We are no longer under the ceremonial laws. Praise Jesus. We can have shrimp wrapped in bacon. We can do all kinds of things. We are no longer under the ceremonial law. And Hebrews is a really good place if you want to bounce uh, the New Testament interpretation of God's law. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These things are offered according to the law, the ceremonial law. And he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The ceremonial law is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's no more need for sacrificing oxen and goats and all of that stuff. Why? Because Christ was sacrificed once for all. Westminster Shorter Catechism, or a Confession of Faith, rather, which I'll be leaning on quite a bit, says this, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, all of which ceremonial laws are now abrogated or fulfilled under the New Testament. Christ is the perfect sacrifice. We have no need for a temple because Christ is our temple. We have no need for sacrifices because Christ is our sacrifice. We have no need for a high priest to mediate the presence to God because Christ is our mediator. 
So the first part of God's law, the ceremonial law, has been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's probably the cleanest part. Second, we have the civil law or the judicial law. These were the laws that governed Israel and kept them organized. Laws like if you have a house, and everybody had a flat roof at that time, and you built a flat roof on top of your house, and you did not put a fence around your house, and your neighbor comes over for a couple drinks and falls off your house and dies, you are responsible for that because you didn't put a fence around. If you have an oxen, and he's an oxen, an ox, probably should have looked that up before I got up here. If you have an ox and he's an angry ox, and you know he's an angry ox, and you see him roaming around, and you're like, yeah, he'll be fine. And if he goes and gores the neighbor and kills the neighbor, guess who's responsible? You are. How about when a neighbor accuses you of a wrong? Is it just the basis of his testimony that the whole country or town is going to gather around and stone you? No, you have to base that on the testimony of two or three witnesses. These are the civil laws that governed Israel. The civil law, for the most part, has been fulfilled in Jesus. Why? Because Israel is no longer exclusively the people of God. We are the people of God. We've been grafted in by faith in Jesus Christ. So the law that was given exclusively for Israel to govern their society, right? Israel's no longer exclusively the people of God. Anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So therefore, that law is fulfilled in that sense. Again, Westminster helps us. To them, meaning Israel, he gave sundry various judicial laws which expired with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. And there's a little bit of the rub, right? Those words, general equity. We can't deny that our society is based on God's law. In some way, shape, or form. There's a lot of other laws that are definitely not based on God's law. But we see remnants of God's law. Why? Well, look at, look at the testimony of two or three witnesses. Where do we see that? Hopefully, we see that in the court system. Right? Things like that. Like, we still have responsibilities. Like, I may not have an ox, but if I, if I have something that I'm responsible for and that kills someone else, I'm still liable for that. Right? You see the general equity, the principles of the law, of the civil law, still have bearing but they have been expired and been fulfilled for Israel, for us, as far as a binding law. And again, why? Since God's law reflects God's character, we're still going to see some of God's character. If you lie under oath, that's a remnant from God's law. It's still here in society. Whether or not we enforce that, who knows? Even our country is built on the law of God. So when we see a law that says, do not murder, which is on every law book of every country in the world. We see the general equity of God's character in his law binding. When we see, again, the laws of the courts or laws of due process, we see these things. So while there are rules that apply specifically to the nation of Israel, the general equity of the principle of the civil law still applies, but not the specifics. We're not Israel. It's not binding on us the way it was binding on them. That brings us to the third part of the law, which is God's moral law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. This is where we're going to park and where we're going to spend our time. But I had to kind of set that foundation because when we say law, we can see question marks coming over everybody's head going, yeah, all the law, like the Leviticus law. Hopefully that separates that out for you. 
We're talking about the moral law of God as reflected in the Ten Commandments is completely and totally still in effect today for us. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, Jesus said so. And that's always safe when Jesus says so. Maybe think way back two years ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5. Christ said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then what does Jesus do? In the Sermon on the Mount, he goes to systematically exposit and preach on God's moral law, on the Ten Commandments, right? He says, do not commit adultery. Okay, great. It also says, I'm saying to you, do not lust after someone in your hearts, right? So Jesus takes the moral law and ratchets it up a little bit. Jesus enforces that the moral law is still in effect today. If you know the Ten Commandments, you know that there's two tables. You know that parts one through four deal with our love for God. And parts six through t- or five through ten, rather, deal with our love for others. And you put that together with how Jesus summed up the moral law, which he proved is still in effect, right? He was asked in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Table one. And you shall, the second, rather, is the great, that is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second table. And Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus' moral law is still in effect. You want to summarize it like this? Love God, love people. It's still in effect. Westminster puts it this way. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of the Ten Commandments. If you need more proof, the New Testament is full of references to the law of God still being in effect, but it's been transformed by the arrival of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, meaning we can no longer earn righteousness through obeying the law. We earn righteousness through Christ, through faith in Christ. Puritan Thomas Watson put it like this, the moral law is unalterable. It remains in force. Though the ceremonial and judicial laws are abrogated, the moral law delivered to God by God's own mouth is perpetually used in the church. It is written on tablets of stone to show its perpetuity. Did you catch that? Again, delivered how? By God's own mouth. God's law is from God, and it's still in effect. It has everything to do with how we see the moral law and how we frame our lives in light of it. We still need the moral law. We still need the Ten Commandments. First thing about God's law, it's from God, and it's still in effect for us today. But in what way? And that's where we get back to Sinai. Look again in Exodus chapter 20. 
read those two verses again. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God continues to set this massive foundation for what comes next in his moral law. Look at verse 2. He says, I am who? I am the Lord your God. Anytime you have a Bible that says capital L-O-R-D, that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. He's the only one who's allowed to use it. It reflects his covenant with Israel. It reflects his perfect holiness. It reflects his eternal character. So God is invoking his covenant name to remind them who he is. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord your God. Listen up. Who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God declares two things, who he is and what he's done. That's how you're all going to obey what I'm going to tell you next. Because remember who I am and remember what I've done. Because I'm Yahweh Elohim, I'm the one and only God, your God, I saved you, I delivered you out of slavery, now listen to me. We see who God is and we see what he's done for his people. First, let's look at who he is, right? The very reality that God is telling Israel and us that his moral law tells us something huge about who he is, or rather, who he's not. God's not fickle. God's not capricious. God's not changing. God doesn't expect one thing from us one day and then something else the next day. God doesn't change his rules. God is constant and steady. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He tells us exactly what he wants from us. <clears throat> Again, Westminster says this, what is the duty that God requires of us? He requires an obedience to his revealed will. And where is his revealed will? I love Westminster. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Did you catch that? God's not hiding anything from us. He's laying it down clearly. He's saying, this is what I want you to do. This is how you make me happy. This is how you live a good life, which we'll get to in a minute. And by nature, right, the opposite. This is what you avoid. This is sin. The opposite of what I might be telling you to do is sin, and you better avoid it. God is clearly telling his people what he wants from them. Scottish Presbyterian James Durham in his massive exposition of the Ten Commandments says, The Lord himself intended as a comprehensive sum of his people's duty that all would know what is pleasing to him and that they would be fitted for duty to him and they may know what is displeasing to him. See how good God is? He gives this, this law in black and white or on stone tablets. He tells us clearly. How many of us have struggled? What does God want from me? What am I supposed to do? He's told us in his law. Start there. Start there. Leviticus puts it this way. You know it's a good sermon where I start dropping Leviticus in the middle of it. Leviticus 18 verse 4 and 5 says, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Right? Ringing that bell again. <clears throat> You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live 
by them. I am the Lord. So he connects his law. He connects our obedience to who he is. And he says something else. If you caught that, if you do them, guess what? You will live by them. God's law is not designed to take our freedom away. God's law is designed to give us freedom and life in his name. It's designed to give us life. And maybe I can say the second point like this. God's law is for our good. God's law is for our good. Right now, some of you are raging on the inside going, no, it's not. God's law is not for, do you see all those do's and don'ts? I mean, look at the front of the the bulletin, man. There's a lot of thou shalt nots right on there. That's not good. God telling us what not to do is, is not good. Just the opposite, church. It shows us how to live. <clears throat> but just as we've had to define terms with what we mean by God's law, I want to define how God's law is good for us. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, God's law is good if one uses it lawfully. Heidelberg Catechism quotes Paul in Galatians 3.24 and says that the law is our guardian or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ meaning it teaches us how to grow in holiness. It protects us from harm. If you spend any time looking at God's law, you're going to get schooled by the schoolmaster. And I've been schooled for the last couple weeks, so now I'm just passing on all of this conviction to you, which is one of my favorite things to use. Puritans and reformers have always thought of this in the threefold use of the law. So we kind of had the threefold division of the law, We have a threefold use of the law. How is God's law good for us? Three ways. The law shows us, Calvin says the law shows us the righteousness of God. It curbs our sinfulness and it teaches us what the will of God is for us. Author Philip Ryken puts it in a much more memorable way for us. How is God's law for our good? It serves as a map. It serves as a muzzle. And it serves as a mirror. First, the map. We already hit this. The law is for our good, and the map literally tells us what to do. The law literally shows us how to please God. You want to know the way to please God? He's given you a map. It's the moral law of God. You may have noticed that we've been systematically reading through Psalm 119 in our our Sunday morning services, and I I think of Psalm 119.32 that says, I will run in the path of your commands because you enlarge my heart. Think of that. I'll run in the path of your, you give me your law, I will run in it because you have freed me. It's good for me. It is a map to show us how to please you. Again, most of us think that God's law is a straitjacket. Instead, it's a signpost directing us to the most fulfilling life that we can possibly have. And again, have you ever asked yourself, what does God want for me? What am I supposed to do? How do I make him happy? He's given you a map, God's law, his moral law. Start there, and then the rest of your life will become suddenly more clear. What am I supposed to do with my life becomes a lot easier to see when we understand who we are supposed to be living our lives for. What we're supposed to do with our lives becomes a lot easier when we understand who we're supposed to be living our lives for. this strikes at the the core of the center of our lives, right? Because if you feel that tension right now, 
about, I'm not so sure I want to sell out to these Ten Commandments, right? Guess what that is? That's your sin. That's your heart. That's your flesh. That's you fighting to keep you the center and God of your life instead of God. And that's the crux of every spiritual battle. Who's in charge? Me or God? God says, I am Yahweh Elohim. I delivered you from Egypt. Here's my law. You listen to it and you will live. If you want to keep fighting to have yourself in the middle of it, it's not going to go so well. Listen to me and live. God's law is for us, good for us as a map. But second, God's law is for our good as a muzzle. Is everybody familiar where the muzzle is? Right? It goes over your face or a dog's face so that it doesn't bite someone, hopefully. But if we put it over our face, what does that stop? Stops our mouth from moving and saying dumb things, right? That could get us into a lot of trouble. Sinful things, hurtful things. It's the idea of restraint. God's law should restrain us from doing stupid things. God's law should protect us. I probably shouldn't do that because God says don't do that. It will protect us from harm. It's a muzzle. This has a larger effect in God's law. What the scripture tells us that the law is written on the heart of every human being. And so what we actually see in society, being attacked by bugs, is that God's law restrains evil in society. And I know some of you are going, I don't think so. Could you imagine if it didn't? Could you imagine if human beings walked around without a conscience at all? Scripture tells us that God's law is put on the heart of every single image bearer of God. And that church, believe it or not, restrains evil in society. It muzzles evil in society. And that is for our good. What is the result of sin? Some of us know things like that very clearly, right? Sin brings destruction. We know that breaking God's law brings destruction. Look at commandment seven. Adultery brings destruction and havoc in a marriage. Look at commandment eight. Stealing brings jail time. Need I go on? The law is for our good as a muzzle. It restrains sin in ourselves and it restrains sin in society. Thirdly, the law of God is for our good as a mirror. This is where it gets even more personal because it's actually a a two-way mirror, because the mirror reflects back to us God's holiness of how perfect he is. But when we see that, guess what we see? We see our sin. The mirror shows us how perfect God is, but the mirror also shows us how perfect we're not. The law of God is for our good as a mirror. It's the inevitable part of seeing God... in his holiness, is that we see our sin so much more. And the best part is, or the worst part is, we can do nothing about it ourselves. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law only comes knowledge of sin. Guess what? We read God's law, we see God's holiness, we see our own sinfulness, and we realize how far we are from God in his righteousness see that and it hurts us the mirror hurts us great thanks again pastor mike really kicking off 2023 on an encouraging note how holy god is and how holy we're not how can that be for our good well in one sense we got to know the truth 
We have to know the truth. We have to know our sin. We have to face it. But another way, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling some despair, you've fallen right into my trap. Desperation about our condition is exactly what we need to feel when we look at God's law. Guys, if you've tuned out, if I've overwhelmed you in my nerdiness and my old dead guys quotes and, and everything like that, just tune back in and hear this. God doesn't give his law to deliver his people. God doesn't give his law to save his people. God gave his law to a people that have already been saved. One author put it this way. <clears throat> the commandments follow the gospel of undeserved deliverance. These are not the commands of some despot who lays down his law in the sense of obey or, and be quiet. These are the commands of Yahweh, the liberator, who wants his people to stay free. They are the rules for life for liberated people, people who must not be foolish enough to fall back into slavery. Church, we've been liberated. We've been freed from the power of sin, from the curse of sin through Jesus Christ, and the law is from God, and it is for our Good. And so I'm going to piggyback on that last quote and say the big idea this way. God's law brings life to those who have already been liberated. God's law brings life to those who have already been liberated. I said that God shows us who he is and what he's done. What did he do for God's people before he gave them the law? Where are they in redemptive history? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. What just happened? God saved them from slavery in Egypt. They've been rescued. They've been saved. And now comes the law. It is critical to realize that. We aren't ever going to understand God's law for us in 2023 unless we see this massive point. God's law for us comes after God's salvation. It has to. God's law brings life to those who have already been liberated. Let me put it this way, a different way. If it, it wasn't law first and then gospel. It was gospel, and then God's law for us. The moral law is still in effect today, and what does that do? It drives us right to Jesus Christ, because we know we can't do this on our own. It's for us who have been saved, just like Israel was saved, and now God says, you're my people, act like it. God says to us, church, you're my people, act like it. God has delivered each and every one of us from slavery in Egypt, except our slavery was sin. And now he gives us his law. What God said to Israel in Exodus 20 is what he says to every single Christian. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the slavery of sin. These are my words. If you do them, you will live by them. So now what? So what? we've been liberated. We follow the law not for salvation because we can't. So we follow it for our sanctification. The law isn't a, a checklist of how to win points from God, right? Look at that. I went a whole day and I didn't lie about my neighbor. Great. It's not a checklist of how to earn points with God. We can't do that. The law is now, church, our guide to sanctification, the law is our guide to growth. You want to know how to grow mature in the faith? Follow the law. Not for your salvation, but for your sanctification. That's what it points to. 
And it's not merely following the words, right? God's law penetrates our hearts and our minds to levels that we can't even think about right now. But we're going to as we step through every one of the laws. This leads to conviction, church. For the non-Christians, if you're with us today and you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ, thank you for coming. I hope you feel a little bit of conviction. I mean that with love, right? Because that's supposed to make us realize that I can't do this. He gave me these rules. I think I broke four of them this morning. I can't do this. When you get more aware of God's law, you realize how often you break God's law. And so if you're not a Christian today, let that drive you to Jesus Christ. Let that show you that's impossible to do it yourself, but there was one who did, and his name is Jesus. And he took your sin and your shame on the cross, and he was resurrected on the third day victoriously so that through faith in him, you can be counted righteous because God looks at you through him. So if you're a non-Christian, let that conviction drive you to Christ. But for a believer, the conviction that we still feel each and every day as we fall short of the moral law of God, let that ring out, oh, how we need Christ. Every single day we need Christ. And as we start to this endeavor here this morning to know God's law, to know its place in our lives, let us resist the non-commandments of our culture of cultural relativism and postmodernism, let us cling to the purity and the beauty of God's law. Rules of life for the liberated. Not for salvation, but for sanctification. Not for death, but for life. Because God's law brings life to those who have already been liberated. Father, we thank you for this word as we think about just even the introduction to your law. Lord, as we want to just take everything we possibly can out of this series, Lord, guide us by your Spirit. Father, for those who do not yet know you, have not bowed the knee to you and, and, and surrender to you as King and Lord of, of their lives, would they realize that the frailty, the, the foolishness of trying to earn favor with you by obeying your law is impossible. Let it drive them to Christ in faith. But for us, Lord, who name you as our Savior and our Lord, would we, God, would we cling to Christ as our righteousness? And when we look at this law, not as something that binds us, but something that frees us, something that sanctifies us, and may we do it and live our lives under your moral law for the glory of your name through the strength that only you can provide in the Holy Spirit. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.